Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Hector Tobar. He is an author, teacher, and journalist. His long career in journalism includes work for The New Yorker, LA Weekly, and for over 20 years he had a number of positions at the Los Angeles Times. He was their metro columnist, a book critic, and the paper's bureau chief in Mexico City and Buenos Aires. He also worked for several years as the national Latino affairs correspondent for the LA Times. Hector Tobar formed part of the team that won a Pulitzer for the paper's reporting on the 1992 LA riots. He's the author of four books so far, including nonfiction works Translation Nation and Deep Down Dark, the untold stories of 33 men buried in a Chilean mine and the miracle that set them free. Tobar's two novels are The Tattooed Soldier and The Barbarian Nurseries. Recently, I had the chance to speak with Hector Tobar in the WFIU studios. Hector Tobar, welcome to Profiles. Thank you for having me. You're the son of Guatemalan immigrants, and you were born in Los Angeles only a couple of months after your parents arrived in the United States. I'd love to hear about your upbringing in general, but one thing in particular that you wrote about for a recent article that mm-hmm. appeared in The New Yorker had to do with the effect that two of your neighbors had mm-hmm. on your life. I was wondering if we could begin by talking about that. Yeah, I was born in February of 1963, the son of Guatemalan immigrants. My parents arrived on a Pan-American jet from Guatemala City in first class. They had bought coach tickets, but got bumped up to uh, first class. My mother was pregnant with me, which of course makes me a quote-unquote anchor baby. My parents later got U.S. residency and U.S. citizenship. My father had a friend, uh, a sort of distant relative, who lived in East Hollywood. And so they settled on Madison Avenue in East Hollywood, which is really lined with old apartments, old tenements. They moved into a one-room apartment, the kind that has a Murphy bed in it, the bed that comes out of the wall. And my mother was very, very pregnant. And um, there was a neighbor down the hall who was this African-American man named Booker Wade, who was taking Spanish classes at LA City College, which isn't too far from this apartment. And he told my mother, I see you're very pregnant. And I see you and your husband, I think you don't have a car. So if you need a ride to the hospital when you're about to give birth, which seems to be very soon, (laughs) I will give you a ride to the hospital. My mother had been praying to this Afro-Peruvian saint, San Martin de Porres. And she thought that this Afro-Peruvian saint had sent one of his brothers, this black man, to help her in her time of need. And so later, Booker Wade became my godfather. He, in fact, did drive my mother to Los Angeles County General Hospital when she went into labor. My father was working, and she gave birth to me there. And later, my parents asked Booker to be my godfather when I was baptized. And it turned out, I didn't know this until 30 years later, that Booker Wade had come to Los Angeles from Memphis, Tennessee. And he was an activist as a teenager with the NAACP in Memphis. And he and his fellow activists had attempted to desegregate the Central Library in Memphis. And they had been arrested for violating the segregation laws in Memphis. And Booker's mother was very worried that her teenage son had got himself into some very serious problems, that the Klan would find a way to kill him. And so she eventually put him on a bus to Los Angeles, which is how he met my parents. Now, fast forward a few years, I'm a little older. I'm celebrating my fifth birthday. We're living in another part of East Hollywood. And we had another neighbor living right behind our backyard fence. 
and his name was James Earl Ray, the soon-to-be assassin of Martin Luther King. Now, I didn't figure this out until another 30 years later, but he had been on the run for several months. He had escaped from a state penitentiary in Missouri and had worked his way to Los Angeles in a brand new cream-colored Mustang and was taking dance classes, volunteering in the George Wallace campaign in California. George Wallace was trying to get on the ballot in California to run for president as an independent in the 1968 presidential election. George Wallace was one of his heroes. And so, yeah, I realized today that I had these two men in my life living close to me, in one case my godfather, in another case my neighbor, who were on opposite ends of this civil rights struggle. And it just seemed to me more than a coincidence, really. It says something about, to me, what it means to be an American. You know, I started looking into my personal history because I wanted to write a piece about what it's like to lose your innocence and to realize that you live in a country filled with divisions, filled with prejudice, filled with racism. And so in doing that, I started to piece together my family history and I realized I had these two men in my life, both of whom had connections to Memphis and connections to the civil rights struggle on opposite sides. Maybe it's the fact that it happened in Los Angeles, but it strikes me as positively filmic. And maybe film metaphors are inevitable when talking about L.A., but just the notion of finding out that your neighbor is James Earl Ray. Can you remember the moment when you pieced that together, when you found that out? Oh, yeah. I was reading an excellent biography of James Earl Ray that's also a reconstruction of the assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, a book called Killing the Dream by this attorney writer named Gerald Posner. Excellent author. He also wrote a wonderful book, about the Kennedy assassination called Case Closed, about Lee Harvey Oswald. And in reading that book on the assassination of King, I saw this address, North Serrano Avenue, and it looked familiar to me. And then I got out a map of Los Angeles and saw that this address was right next to my address at the end of Herald Way. My street was a dead-end street, And right at the end of the Denon Street, there was a fence. And on the other side of that fence was James Earl Ray's apartment. And of course, being the curious person living in Los Angeles, I went around and found this place. But, you know, I think that in the United States, we live in a country where races, ethnicities always are mixing. And in fact, the same thing happens in the Midwest. I mean, here we are in Indiana. This story has an origin in Illinois. I mean, uh, James Earl Ray was born in Alton, Illinois. He lived on a street that was integrated. I went back for this piece that I did for The New Yorker on James Earl Ray and my neighborhood. I went back and I did a lot of research on Ray, and I found that he was born in Alton, Illinois. And I went and I looked up the census records from the year just before he was born. And if you look up these old census records, and a lot of people do this for genealogy work, you can see the lists of names of people on the streets that they lived on. And so on the street where James Earl Ray would be born two years later, there were African-American people living from Texas and from Mississippi, uh, migrants from the Great Migration, the famous Great Migration from the South to the Midwest and to the northern cities. And so James Earl Ray grows up in this town, Alton, Illinois, living alongside black people. And also, you know, Miles Davis had been born in Alton, Illinois, two years earlier. And so Miles Davis and James Earl Ray have this connection, too. And I think that if you look anywhere in the United States, even in Indiana, Illinois, especially in any midsize or big city, you'll find all sorts of connections like this. I think that that's what surprised me most about the article and perhaps your work as a whole is that you are pointing out differences by showing how similar they are. 
there's so much uniting as opposed to dividing. I mean, I don't want to say celebrating difference because right. it might not be quite the right word, but there is a casual, confident observance of difference. And you do it by not over-differentiating. It's by saying, look, the most disparate things imaginable, Miles Davis and James Earl Ray, have so much in common. You know, your own parents' experience in Guatemala and the experience of your godfather, Booker Wade, they have so much in common. Absolutely. And that seems to be a through line that runs throughout your work. Is that something that you're consciously trying to do? No, I just think it's one of the lessons of my career as a journalist. I became a reporter for a major daily newspaper when I was 25 years old. And for the first five years of my career, I was a street reporter. And I was really good at it. I could go to a neighborhood and just start having casual conversations with people and find out all sorts of stuff. And when you do that, you realize how much we really all have in common. And one of the tricks of interviewing is identification. You know, you share something about yourself. You're sitting talking to, let's say, a day laborer, in South Central Los Angeles, or to an African-American historian in New York, just all sorts of different kinds of people, one of the things you do is you share something about yourself and you find a point of identification. The whole basis of the work of interviewing then becomes, what do I have in common with this person to help me establish a very quick relationship with him or her? And so you learn to sort of think in that way, how are we connected? I think it's a very natural human thing to seek out those connections and not feel it's something artificial. That, in fact, is my assumption about a person when I meet them. I assume that I might have something in common with them or probably do have something in common with them in some way. And so, yeah, that's just the basis of my work. Meeting someone in that context as a journalist, reaching that point of identification quickly, finding that thing in common, when you've done that, above and beyond its value in establishing a rapport. Mm -hmm. When you're doing that, have you already started writing? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, yes, I've taught over the years a lot of journalism classes. And I call interviewing writing with questions. So absolutely, I think that it comes from getting into that routine of being a journalist where you're writing, interviewing, writing, interviewing all at the same time. You start a project You do your first interview, you write something down, then you start interviewing more people, you write a little bit more of the story. And so you're inside of the writing process and the interviewing process almost simultaneously. And so when I sit down to talk with someone, I am thinking like a writer. I am trying to fully imagine a scene someone has described to me. I was interviewing these Chilean miners. They were trapped underground, 600 meters, 2,000 feet underground. And they start describing the situation they're in, and I begin asking them for details. This wall of stone blocked the way out, and it looked like the stone that covered Jesus' tomb. You know, and I'm thinking as a writer, oh, my God, what an amazing simile, what an amazing metaphor. But then I ask questions. What color was that stone, right? What did it look like? Oh, senor, it was the same color as the shirt you're wearing because I was wearing a gray shirt that day. And so definitely I'm always thinking like a writer. I have developed an ear for dramatic elements. And I think that the most important thing as an interviewer is to be open-minded and also to be prepared for surprises, to think on your feet. You know, I tell my students when I teach journalism classes, don't go into an interview with a list of questions, a list of things you're going to ask, because that's almost telling the person you're interviewing, oh, I already know what you have to tell me. I'm not trying to find out who you are, who you truly are, what you really want to tell me. I instead already know what the story is. And that's a real turnoff. 
I mean, I've been interviewed many times and it just really is deflating because you might sit down in a chair before a microphone to talk to somebody and have so many things to say and you realize that this person really is only interested in a few things and doesn't even know who you really are. And so I think that absolutely I'm always thinking as a writer when I sit down to speak with someone and primarily I'm waiting to be surprised and then I'm ready to go with the surprise. If someone tells me something I didn't expect and it's absolutely awesome thing, let's talk about that. Let me forget maybe some of the things that I thought we were going to talk about and let's talk about that thing. What's extraordinary about hearing you say that is that writing, something that takes a lot of dedication, you have to carve out time for it, and there's craft involved. Mm -hmm. Yes. As you describe it, seems almost like performance disciplines, like being in the moment. Well, yeah. You know, it's been the last maybe 10 or 15 years that I've really begun to think of writing as performance. You know, I have a son who is a theater student in New York, and he's definitely a performance person. And to see him get up on stage and transform himself and just see there are good days and bad days. And definitely with writing, there are days when it's a physical act and physically you're more alert. Or maybe you're in an emotional space where you just are freer and you're more receptive to the verbs and the adjectives the writing gods want to drop down on you. I mean, I have passages that I've read in books that I've written where I can see a passage where I wrote that in one sitting and it was just like an hour where I just wrote this paragraph or these two pages in a book and that just all came out in one sitting and I never really changed it because that particular morning when I wrote it, I was on. And when I look at that passage, I can remember that moment when I was totally on as a writer. I can remember what the coffee was like. I can remember where I was sitting because that was like a glorious moment. It doesn't come very often when you're totally on like that as a writer. A lot of stars have to align. And then I can look at other passages, like in the book that I just finished that's coming out next year, where I could see a passage of about three or 400 words that I spent literally weeks working on that passage, going back to it, revising and revising. I'd never had that one day when it all just came together. And I had to sort of work many, many days to try to find that same sort of magic that on another day when I felt more alert, I managed to find that in an hour. Hector Tobar, author, teacher, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. You mentioned the importance of being on your toes, being ready for surprises. You were a Metro columnist for the LA Times, and you were also a book critic for them for a while. You were the bureau chief in Mexico City and Buenos Aires, Argentina, and you also worked for several years as the national Latino affairs correspondent. Another thing you were a part of was the newspaper's coverage of the Los Angeles riots of 1992, speaking of surprises and thinking on your feet. What was that experience like, and what have you carried forward from that, especially in your more personal Mm. nonfiction writing, and your fiction writing for that matter? 1992 was a moment of history, and seeing the city burn that day in April of 1992, I was at that moment 29 years old, and I had been a writer at the LA Times for four years, but I was seeing my hometown burn, and I was seeing my hometown transformed into a war zone, 
And it was at first somewhat exhilarating. I mean, it was an expression of all of the frustration various groups of people felt in the city of Los Angeles. At the beginning, of course, it was an African-American uprising against police abuse. For those of our listeners who aren't aware of the history, there were these four police officers who were charged with beating a man, Rodney King, an African-American man. There was videotape of this beating. They hit him 40 or 50 times. It was obviously excessive. And yet an all-white jury in a suburb of Los Angeles found them not guilty, which is what sparked the riots. And so at the beginning, it was this expression of African-American frustration, and it became also a Latino poverty riot. It was also, in some places, a pogrom against Asian-American merchants, a really horrible thing, where many of these merchants armed themselves, and it became a kind of civil war in the heart of Koreatown, for example. It became something really frightening. At first, I felt exhilarated that I was seeing a kind of popular uprising. But within about an hour, it became a moment of lawlessness, a moment of the lowest elements of the human condition, seeing people beaten up in the street for nothing more than saying, don't loot that liquor store, it belongs to my friend, and seeing people getting beaten up on the street. It was frightening. It became really frightening. I had nightmares about the L.A. riots for four or five months after they happened. And it was ultimately something that was not very productive in terms of the social relations in the city. I don't think Los Angeles was any better for that. One of the things that came out of that was that it helped feed the anti-immigrant movement that would start to take hold in California in those years in the mid-1990s, which, of course, has now circled the United States and the globe. But it was also epic. I mean, I covered on that day for which we won the Pulitzer Prize, I covered, you know, 20, 30 miles of the metropolis of Los Angeles from South Central L.A., from Slauson Avenue, all the way up to East Hollywood, to the neighborhood where I grew up. I saw looting and burning. And I ended that day a couple of blocks from my home. I lived in a place called Silver Lake where they were looting a, uh, an electronics store about a block away from my house. And it was just a very surreal experience. And it also, to me, was the end of a period of idealism about the United States. I mean, I grew up believing in this country as this beacon of not just only democracy, but of social equality and opportunity. And it was an announcement that that opportunity was not reaching everyone and that this country had deep injustices and inequalities that had not been addressed and might never be addressed. Your first novel, The Tattooed Soldier, is set in the immigrant neighborhoods of L.A. in the weeks leading up to the 1992 riots and also in Guatemala during the years of the military dictatorship there. And it's the story about a man whose wife and son are murdered in Guatemala and about him encountering the murderer again in Los Angeles. It's a revenge story, but it's not a straightforward story in the way that I suppose life is never straightforward, that even in a story about black hats and white hats, it's not black and white. How did you arrive at your method of telling the stories of these two men and what motivated them? Wow, that's a really great question. Well, I, I began that novel as my MFA thesis. So having lived through the riots in 92, a year later, I quit the Los Angeles Times to get a Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at UC Irvine, and I began to write a novel, that novel, The Tattooed Soldier. I wanted to tell a story that was about Los Angeles and about this war in Guatemala 
and about Guatemala and what I sort of knew about it and the emotional truths I could communicate about what had happened in Guatemala during this revolution and civil war and this actually war of genocide that took place in the Indian parts of Guatemala. Really one of the great horrific tragedies of the history of the Western Hemisphere and also unknown and unseen. You know, we all have seen images of the Holocaust in Germany and in Europe. We've seen images of what happened in Bosnia, even of Rwanda. You know, we've seen these horrific massacres. But what happened in Guatemala happened outside of media coverage in a a remote corner of the Americas, but something that was really very Nazi-like. And that's what I tried to portray in the novel. And it seemed to me that that novel was an opportunity to say, look, the United States actually was involved in organizing this war in Guatemala, and we as Americans have blood on our hands for this genocide. And at the same time, there are refugees from this war living in Los Angeles. And just to sort of see the poverty of L.A., I was able to communicate and describe the homelessness that I was seeing in Los Angeles. You know, I remember I grew up in the United States without homelessness. 1960s and 70s, there were not homeless people in the streets of the United States in large numbers. I'm of the generation that saw homelessness explode in the United States. And in Los Angeles in the 1990s, it was a very dark time in the history of the city, just like now. Now California, Los Angeles has this incredible explosion of homelessness during a period of economic growth. And so that was really disturbing to me. And I wanted to communicate that in that novel. And so I have these two stories. I wrote the first draft of my novel as my MFA thesis. I sold it to a small publishing house, got a great editor, Joy Johansson. I had originally written it from three different points of view. And my editor told me, no, let's put all the Los Angeles chapters together. Let's put all of the Guatemala chapters in the center. And she really helped me. I mean, she really taught me how I could structure this novel. And so it became this juxtaposition. It became this beginning story that's set in Los Angeles in this period of homelessness. My refugee from Guatemala, the victim of these crimes that took place during this genocidal war, uh, he is a homeless man living in Los Angeles. And the man who victimized his family, Sergeant Logoria, the man who'd been trained at the School of the Americas and also trained at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, you know, in counterinsurgency warfare. He's living in retirement in central Los Angeles by MacArthur Park. And the two of them meet in Los Angeles. And then we have a big flashback to Guatemala, which is sort of my love poem to radicals, to idealistic, sometimes really dumb radicals who do dumb things, very dangerous things. I was really happy with the way it came together. I was really helped. It was my first novel. I think all writers are really fortunate if they can get a good editor. And my editor, Joy Johansson, so indebted to her for her showing me how I could put all these stories together. Your first nonfiction book, Translation Nation, Defining a New American Identity in the Spanish-Speaking United States, it's a feat of observation about the changing experience mm-hmm. of Latin Americans who've settled in America. And you take the reader all over America, from Alabama to Idaho to Nebraska to Tennessee. And in the book, you never shy away from relating all of these experiences back to your own personal experiences. You wrote this book back in 2005. Yes. And as we record this, it is 2019. And maybe you're the sort of writer who never looks back, but just in case you are the sort who does, what is it like looking back at your depiction of the country and comparing it to the current realities? 
Well, you know, that was written in a time of a lot of optimism in the Latino communities across the United States. And I'm very proud of that book. Um, I wish I had maybe read a little bit more of W.B. Du Bois. I wish I had read a little bit more of James Baldwin. I wish I was a little bit um, harder on the United States when I wrote that. But it was hard to be hard on America when, I mean, the immigrants I met in all these places really were sort of having a love affair with these new communities they had moved into. What happened with Translation Nation is that I had been a writer at the LA Times and I had seen how Latino immigrants were transforming the Los Angeles urban landscape by starting businesses, starting newspapers, radio stations, soccer leagues. And then Latino immigration moved out beyond the coasts, beyond Miami, beyond New York, beyond Los Angeles, and it moved into the heartland of the United States. And I got to follow it as a national correspondent at the LA Times into the heartland. I went to Rupert, Idaho, Grand Island, Nebraska, Garden City, Kansas, Memphis, Tennessee. I went to all these new Latino communities, Dalton, Georgia, and saw how this spirit of entrepreneurship, of community activism, in every community I found a person that I called Citizen Zero, you know, like Patient Zero. The first person to get that notion that I can be a civic actor here in this town, here in Dalton, Georgia, here in Memphis. You know, I'm like the first like Mexican guy here who actually has an idea that I could start an organization. And so the first Mexican organization gets started in Memphis. I met those people everywhere. And so to me, that was a period of just so much optimism. I just saw so many people like my father people who had arrived with very little humble circumstances, but arrived with lots of ambition, uh, ambition for themselves and for their children, for their communities. It all happened a few years before the anti-immigrant movement really began to sweep across the United States. I remember meeting this one sort of crotchety old man in Rupert, Idaho, who was really the only person I met in all my travels who was really rapidly anti-immigrant. He was like one of the last people I interviewed when I was working on that project. Little did I know that that man would be multiplied by <laughs> hundreds of thousands and that this movement would sweep across the United States. And so looking back at it, I really feel that I could have been a little bit more of a critic, a little bit more skeptical, which is sort of the project that I'm working on now is writing a little bit about what it is to be a Latino person, a child of immigrants, Latinx, whatever you want to call us, in a time of so much xenophobia and so much prejudice, so much misunderstanding about a people. But but I'm, I'm very proud of having been a witness to that phenomenon, to that time in American history. Your third book, The Barbarian Nurseries, takes on class struggles, ethnic conflict, and artifice in more or less present-day Southern California. And it was named a New York Times notable book for 2011, and in her review of the book for the New York Times, Rebecca Donner wrote something that I can't resist quoting in full, if I may. She said, the strength of this book is to be found in its sympathetic portrayals of people who struggle to find a common language yet persist in misunderstanding one another. What made you want to write this book? Ah, uh, Well, The Barbarian Nurseries <laughs> was a project that I worked on for 15 years. 15 years. I remember I finished the first draft of that book on the day that my wife went into labor with our first son, which was in 1996. And it was published in 2011. 
And when it was published, so many years had passed that that boy who was born on the day that I finished the first draft was already a sophomore in high school. And he went to my first reading of that book and he said, Papa, I really liked your reading, but I think you kind of overdid the symbolism. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how much time passed on that book. And I originally started the book in the mid-1990s as my response to the anti-immigrant movement. I mean, it was shocking to me what was happening in California. We had a couple of voter initiatives that sought to deny public services, including the right to public education and the right to emergency room services in hospitals to undocumented immigrants. It was all over the airwaves, talk radio, television campaigns to pass these initiatives. And it was just really shocking to me. I'd grown up in this society, California, that was so open-minded and so welcoming, and suddenly there was this viciousness directed at people who looked like me. And so I started to write this novel. It was originally called Farewell, California, and it was about an undocumented woman who's charged with a crime. And I finished it in 1996, and my agent started to shop it around, and it didn't sell. And it didn't sell because it really wasn't very good. (laughs) Because it was a novel about a family, this white family, and their children, and Araceli, who's a live-in maid, and I had written it before I'd ever had a family. So I didn't really know anything about being a parent or being in a family. So I set it aside after it had been rejected. I wrote Translation Nation, and in about 2005, I went back to this project. I realized its flaws, and I started writing it all over again. And I just took it apart. I think I saved the first scene. But the motivation was to write a novel about this anti-immigrant moment, right? to write a novel about the prejudices against undocumented and Mexican and Latino immigrants, but also to write about our dependence on each other, You know how American citizens, in this case, this upper middle class family, is dependent on this woman. Araceli is the main character in the novel. It's dependent on this woman who comes in to work and maintain order in the physical space of their house. And I really based a lot of it on my own observations because when I was writing this novel, I was living in Mexico City. I was a foreign correspondent, and we had, in my home in Mexico City, we had a live-in maid. And so I was able to witness the way my wife and this woman, this Mexican woman, work together, which I think is something that happens in thousands of homes across the United States where there are immigrant Latina women, servants, nannies who come in and they work in cooperation with American mothers. And so the novel begins with a portrait of this family and this American upper middle class family is going through a moment of crisis. Uh, The husband works in a dot-com type business that is collapsing They're not as liquid as they were before, right? They're having trouble making their debt payments. And so Araceli's a witness to this. And I really wanted to write a story about the class divisions in the United States, how the class divisions are expressed through these ethnic divisions. All of this then explodes into a public arena in the barbarian nurseries because the parents have a fight. They go their separate ways without realizing they've left the nanny slash servant with the kids. She is a person who doesn't really like kids. (laughs) She's, you know, she's kind of an irascible type person. And she ends up taking the boys in search of their Mexican-American grandfather, who she thinks lives in central Los Angeles, although he hasn't lived there for 50 years. And she goes off in search of this place. 
and takes this journey, this sort of odyssey from ultra-rich, gated community in Orange County to the bowels of south-central Los Angeles, racially mixed community, very poor. And so it's my commentary on these class divisions in Los Angeles. And it's, you know, sort of satirical. It's a little bit like Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, except I couldn't be quite as satirical as he is. I don't think I have license for that. And so, yeah, that's how The Barbarian Nurseries was born. And it just took me forever because in writing that novel, I was teaching myself how literature works really for the first time. Um, I, I had a terrible public school education in Southern California. I really wasn't exposed to a lot of literature. I didn't major in literature in college. I was a sociology and Latin American studies major. And so I was giving myself, as I wrote that novel, an education in American literature. I wrote a lot of Chekhov. I read Cheever. I read Alice Munro. I read all the masters of writing uh, literature of domesticity. So it was a wonderful experience, and it was my commentary on class and ethnicity in Los Angeles. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the protagonist of this story, Araceli Ramirez, because she's an extraordinary character because at once she is the reader and not the reader. At once she's someone who doesn't really know where she is, but she always seems to know better at the same time. And I was wondering if she might have had something to do with you figuring out how literature worked, figuring out how Araceli worked. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, it was so fun to create her as a character. She's essentially my alter ego. She is an intellectual trapped in the body of a servant. So in the novel, Araceli is an artist. She wants to be an artist. She paints and draws. And she's gone to art school for one year in Mexico City. But what happens a lot with working class kids in Mexico is that they can't afford to go, even though college is free. It still costs a lot to a family because you lose someone's income while they're studying. And so she can only study for a year. She has to drop out of the School of Fine Arts in Mexico City, come to Los Angeles to work. And so she's extremely frustrated with her situation, which is basically uh, <laughs> it's basically an allegory about myself, right? Because I, son of Guatemalan immigrants, Working at a newspaper for a lot of my life, I had to go back to working for a newspaper while I was writing that novel because I sold my first novel, but it sold it for $5,000. And, you know, I couldn't make a living as a book writer, so I had to go and be a mercenary. I'm joking, of course. At the Los Angeles Times, I had to work in daily newspapers, and I really couldn't be the artist I want to be. Not only that, you know, in Los Angeles, to be brown-skinned, as I am, very often people are confused about who you are. Let me give you an example. I'd be standing, when I was younger, I didn't have so many gray hairs. I'd be standing at a street corner, let's say in Hollywood, with some friends waiting for a restaurant to open. This happened to me once. A woman comes up to me and hands me the keys oh, to her me. car. Oh, no. And asks me to park her car. And I'd like, what? What are you saying? <laughs> it's like, I'm not a valet, I'm a writer. That happened when I was younger, and, and even just a few years ago, I was at a soccer match watching one of my sons play in a soccer match, and I was in a line of parents, multi-ethnic line of parents, Asian guy, white guy, black person. We're all watching our kids play soccer, and I'm on the sideline, and this little kid comes up to me, must have been about five years old, and he hands me a dollar, and he says, can I have an ice cream? And I looked around, and I saw that maybe five or ten feet away, there was an ice cream cart. And behind the ice cream cart, there was a Guatemalan immigrant, which the little boy hadn't seen, this immigrant 
ice cream vendor. He had seen the ice cream cart. And so he looked at these four or five parents and he just picked the one who he thought was most likely the ice cream vendor. And that was me. (laughs) This doesn't happen to me so much anymore because Los Angeles has changed and people are more aware of the clues that I have to offer in my physical appearance and in my bearing. The way I hold myself, it's obvious that I'm an upper middle class person or a middle class person. And so people don't confuse me so much with the gardener or the valet. So I gave that to Araceli. Araceli is someone who is actually a domestic. uh, And yet she has this intellectual life that is going on in her head. That's my father. My father was the same kind of person. He worked in Hollywood parking cars. And so I gave that to this character. I gave her that frustration. She's a really smart person. She's an observant person. And yet her voice isn't heard. Her critical voice, her sarcastic voice, her observant voice is something that can only exist in her head because no one really cares what the Latina servant has to say about anything other than her job, right? That is how I created Araceli and how I gave her my own frustrations and had her express too this, you know, this trap that we're in often as brown people in California and the United States. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest today is author Hector Tobar, whose books include The Barbarian Nurseries and Deep Down Dark. In 2010, when 33 men were trapped by the Copiapó mining accident in Chile, you were chosen to write their story before they were even rescued. Yes. Could you tell the story of that story, how you came to be the author of Deep Down Dark? If our listeners will remember, it was 2010, and it was one of those stories that temporarily linked the world together. (laughs) They were trapped underground for 69 days. They had been discovered after 17 days after a collapse in this mine in northern Chile. At that point, they were starving to death. So for the next 50 days or so of the rescue, the Chilean government sent down food to them and got them stronger while they simultaneously were carving this huge channel in order to send the capsule down and pull them out, right? You'll remember that story. So a few days before they were rescued, they were about to go back to the surface. And it was a very paradoxical situation because they're down in this horrible mine where it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 98% humidity, terrible, terrible place to be. They're still trapped. They're in this dark, dank place. And they realize, however, that they're famous, that they are about to become the most famous miners on earth. And they realize that there's money to be made. In fact, one of the the ways they realize this is that they send a phone line down to them so they can talk to people on the surface. And people from all over the world come to talk to them, like the Israeli ambassador comes, the Palestinian ambassador to Chile also comes to talk to them. And so among the people who come to talk to them are a couple of the guys from the Uruguayan rugby team that had been stuck in the Andes, if you remember that movie and that book. Alive. Uh, Alive, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so Alive had become a film and a book, and the guys, the Uruguayan rugby team, had made some money from that experience. And so the Uruguayan rugby team told these guys on the phone, the miners, you know, get a lawyer. (laughs) Get a lawyer as soon as you can. And so they actually tried to 
notarize a document with a lawyer while they were still trapped underground, but the um, notary said, no, sir, I'm sorry, we can only notarize a document when I'm actually in your presence. You know, we're currently separated by 2,000 feet of stone. (laughs) (laughs) And so as soon as they got out, they signed this agreement with a Chilean law firm to represent them. It was one of the biggest law firms in Chile. And this law firm said, wow, well, we need to find someone to tell the story. First of all, we need to hire a Hollywood agent. We need to get a Hollywood production company on this. And of course, the book is going to be written that's going to help the movie guys make the movie. And the book has to be probably written in English. So they hired William Morris Endeavor. And the agents at William Morris Endeavor had a meeting and they thought, well, we need somebody who is a fluent Spanish speaker, a journalist, a novelist who writes in English, and preferably somebody who knows South America. And I had been one aside as bureau chief of the LA Times. I'd been to Chile many times. So that description of those qualities, you know, that was maybe four or five people in the United States who <laughs> met that description, right? And my novel, The Barbarian Nurseries, was just coming out. And so they called me and asked me, Hector, would you be interested in writing the story of these guys? And I asked my agent, I said, how many of them do you have signed up? How many guys do you have rights for? And my agent said, all of them. And I said, wow, fantastic. Well, sign me up. And so I went to Chile to meet these guys. And they met the lawyers first in Santiago, Chile, the capital. And then we flew all up together to Copiapó, this mining town. And I met about 25 or so of the 33 miners who had all come together there in the town to meet me. And I told them, gentlemen, I told them in Spanish, gentlemen, you all have lived one of the great adventure stories of our time. I mean, people are going to be talking about this for years to come. And my job is to make them talk about it for centuries to come, to write a book that will make people remember this in the same way that Homer wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad and allowed people to remember the sacking of Troy for two millennia. So it's really my job to be your Homer. (laughs) And I just looked at these guys and I saw a bunch of blank stares. But I mean, I did communicate my earnestness and I began to interview the men right away, right after that introduction, and immediately became apparent to me that many of them were suffering from trauma from having been buried underground. They were suffering from post-traumatic stress. And the other thing that I realized was that they were just these average working guys. Once again, they really reminded me a lot of my own father, you know, just very ambitious working men who worked in this risky place to make a lot of money so that they could buy a truck, a pickup truck, or so that they could buy a house with a nice backyard, or so they could send their daughter to engineering school. One of them had a daughter in engineering school. And also so that they could afford to have the girlfriend who could have the extra house in addition to the house they had their wife in, you know. And so and so, uh, it was a really wonderful experience to get to know those men and tell their story. And, of course, it was really a love story is what it ended up being. It was a story about the love these men had for each other, for their families, and the love that Chile expressed for them as symbols of Chilean identity and Chilean love. You mentioned that they suffered you realized from post-traumatic stress. You didn't shy away from personal details about these men. It's fair to say that many of them also brought traumas and flaws and demons into the minds with them Absolutely. on that day. Absolutely. So were you ever worried about being too revealing? Um, wow, that's a great question. I sometimes was, yes. 
but I, I think that as a writer, you realize that the most important thing is to tell the full truth and that if you reveal something about someone that seems to lower your vision of them, it also builds up the other parts of their life. So for example, if you have somebody who does something incredibly heroic, but you also reveal that as a younger person, he was an alcoholic or he had abandoned his daughter. To me, those two things go together because they're part of one human being. No one is the worst thing they've ever done. That sort of came across with all these guys. You know, it was a really strange situation to be in because I was sort of like a therapist in these interviews. And I had a lot of people break down in front of me. But I was a therapist who wasn't going to keep everything secret and, in fact, was going to tell the whole world what was revealed in the therapy session. I really only had once where someone refused to answer one of my questions. You know, this one man told me he just felt in those first 17 days as he was slowly dying that he was being punished for some of the things he had done that were really horrible things. And I asked him, well, what things? And he said, oh, no, I'm not going to talk about that. And then about 20 minutes later, he did sort of tell me. He told me that he felt extremely guilty because he had a daughter with his girlfriend. His girlfriend had given birth to this young girl, and she was growing up without him. And he knew that his absence from her life was really impacting that little girl. And it really was eating away at him as he was dying underground, you know, that he was going to die without repairing that relationship. I think that's what he was originally reluctant to tell me. And so, yeah, I was never really reluctant. I was fair. You know, it's like I think that someone reveals something about themselves to you. And I wanted to be fair in my portrait. I wasn't scandalous about it. Someone talks about their drinking to me. That's not all that they are. They're not just an alcoholic. They're a dad or they're a son. But at the same time, that drinking problem is part of their suffering. It's part of their story, their journey. I was never exploitative with the things people told me, but it was really like a therapy session doing these interviews. Much of your work, be it the journalistic work you've done, the novels you've written, seems to center around a notion of visibility. Mm. You said that you still feel invisible in your home city of Los Angeles. What are some of the ways that you try to make invisible life experiences visible through your writing? To me, it's about having one's full humanity recognized. I mean, it's most obvious to me in the stories of Latino immigrants that I tell. You know, the stereotype of the immigrant is of this uncultured person who is labor power, you know, a beast of burden. That image becomes a kind of self-image that a lot of Latino immigrants have, that I'm just a beast of burden. No valgo para nada. I'm not really worth anything. And this causes a lot of dysfunction in Latino families, you know, this sort of really poor self-image. At the same time, there are so many Latino families where people have labored so hard to express that humanity, to show their worth, to show their acumen, to show their inventiveness. I have students now at UC Irvine who write these stories for me about their parents, about their families. One recent one I'll never forget is one of my students describing her mother. 
her mother as a street vendor selling tamales on the street takes the small amount of cash that she makes from this and builds an empire. You know, they 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 own horses and they own properties now. And she begins with a small pot of money and takes it to a poker game that takes place in one of the parks in Los Angeles. Beats everyone at poker because, as this young woman describes her mother, my mother is a savant. My mother is a savant with numbers, with economics and math. There are just so many stories like that. And so to me, that is expressing the full humanity of this person. I sort of feel that same frustration as an artist. You know, I just sort of feel because I'm straddling all these different worlds, because I'm a fiction writer and a nonfiction writer, and because I work in journalism and I'm a teacher, I feel like, and this is a reflection of my own insecurity, I know, but I just don't feel like I'm successful in any of them. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's very frustrating to me when I'm introduced as a journalist. Very often I'll go to a place and speak and I'm introduced as, here's a journalist, Hector Tobar. Well, you know, I also write novels. But that's just a, it's a very, you know, all writers are insecure. All writers feel that they're not recognized, especially in these days when we have so many reasons to believe that people aren't reading, that books are dying. And so, yeah, I just think it's a constant struggle. I mean, that's basically what my career is. I was an only child loner, very quiet kid who found a way to be powerful at the same time that he's a loner. And that way to be powerful is to write. To write, you have to really isolate yourself for two or three hours a day. And you have to be ruthless about that. You have to say, for those two hours, I'm not a dad. I'm not a husband. I'm not a friend. I am a writer for those two hours. I take those two or three hours of isolation a day, and after four or five years of doing that almost every day writing, I come up with a book, and I get to go on tour and talk to people and do interviews. (laughs) And so it's taking this invisibility that I feel. To be a loner, you want to be invisible. You don't want anybody to see you. You don't feel worthy of being seen, and you take that impulse to be alone, and you transform it into this public thing. You already mentioned your transition into academia. You've taught writing at schools like Loyola Marymount University, Pomona College, the University of Oregon, and you're currently an associate professor at the University of California, Irvine. How does teaching affect your own approach to writing? I I won't ask what you're teaching your students. I probably don't have to because we'll learn that one day when we're all reading what some of them have written. But (laughs) uh, instead, I guess I'll ask, what are you learning from your students? How's that affecting your writing? Oh, I think it's a fountain of youth. It's absolutely the most wonderful thing I've ever done in a job. You know, it's just uh, to go and to, first of all, share what I've learned through 30, 40 years of reading. That's part of what I'm doing. I'm sharing what I've learned through 40 years of reading, through American literature, American history, nonfiction writing. I'm sharing like the coolest things I've read and the insights that I've gotten into the American experience and into the writing process through these 30 or 40 years of writing. And that's a wonderful thing to be this sort of elder who is sharing something and also my excitement, my passion for this craft, these things this writing. And what I'm getting back, because almost every class I teach ends up having a creative writing component where the students are going to do some reporting or they're going to write a work of nonfiction. Very often that ends up becoming sort of memoir-ish. There are elements of memoir in it, or it's an exploration of the community that they live in. And so what I'm getting from it is this incredible portrait 
of the times we live in from these young intellectuals. And so it's sort of like looking into the future because my students are from age 19 to 22, 23, and they have enough intellectual prowess to begin to process what they're seeing. And what they're seeing is multi-ethnic California, but also a period of sort of economic instability. A lot of them have memories of the crash of 2008. They saw their families survive that crash and try to recover from that crash. And they're also telling stories of these encounters between a Vietnamese family and a Salvadoran family, a Mexican family, an African-American family. And it's just absolutely, to me, I feel like I'm looking at the future of American literature where people are a little bit more comfortable with ethnic mixing, although I know ethnic mixing has been something that has defined American history from the very beginning, you know, from the 17th century. There have always been these encounters between cultures. That's very much what I see. I'm just getting back this vision of the future. And it actually makes me really very, very hopeful for the future of this country because I see students who are really ambitious and really hungry, uh, hungry to accomplish, to do something that helps change the world in which they live. And I have a sense that they're also very tenacious and that they won't stop until they actually change the world in which they live. So it makes me very hopeful for the future. You mentioned that in teaching, you are relaying to your students what you know, 40 years worth of your knowledge of American literature. And what they're teaching you is maybe about the future and certainly about the present, about what society is like now. You said recently that American literature is behind where we are right now as a society. Could you elaborate on what you mean by that and how you intend to remedy that situation through your work as a writer and as a teacher? Wow, what a fantastic question. I think that, um, well, like I said, I just see all of these different strands of United States and Latin American and Asian history and African American history. I see them all woven together on a daily basis. I see it as something incredibly normal and ordinary in a place like California. And also in other places, in so many corners of the United States. And I don't really feel that yet reflected in American literature. In American literature, encounters between ethnic groups are very often tragic or they're full of conflict. And so to me, multi-ethnic encounters are something that are just part of ordinary life. You know, there's this beautiful series of photographs by this photographer who works for the New York Times who works in South Central Los Angeles, and he documented the Blackxican population, you know, Black Mexican population of South Central. And through these wonderful photographs, and a lot of them are of these young people who are of mixed race, they're Black and Mexican, holding their family photographs, their mother and father, Black man, Mexican woman, on their wedding day, or family photograph in the 1970s, you know, showing the parents of this person, or the same person when they were younger in these mixed race families. And it's just so full of love and complications of family, too. You can sort of feel a little bit of the conflicts that took place in this family. All very normal. All families have conflict, right? And so I just feel like American literature hasn't reached that place yet where that's a given, that these encounters between cultures are ordinary. They're not necessarily tragic. They are, in fact, just part of the fabric of our lives, you know? And I I feel that that is going to be expressed 
in the future of American literature, but it's not quite there right now. And also, I feel that literature about people of color, it's so weighed down by identity. For example, you are a Guatemalan kid or a Cuban kid growing up in the United States, and you feel, especially if you're a member of a community that has lots of undocumented people or whatever, you feel a certain loyalty to your community where you don't want to betray them negatively. And so, for example, when I wrote The Barbarian Nurseries, I had one reviewer say, you know, it's really interesting that Mr. Tobar would want to write a story with an undocumented immigrant who really wasn't very sympathetic, you know, because Araceli, I mean, to me, she's very sympathetic because she's hilarious. But, you know, Araceli's kind of this irascible woman. She's a little spiky. She's spiky, yeah. But to me, I mean, I didn't care. I wasn't thinking about her as an object in the immigration debate. I was thinking of her as an expression of a truth, of a reality. And so I think there's a lot of caution in portrayals of immigrant and Latino America especially. And I really hope that this next generation, and I know they will, will be a little bit less cautious. They'll be more willing to, as we say in Spanish, put out los trapos sucios, you know, the, uh, the dirty laundry. Because that doesn't subtract from our experience. It just adds to the complexity of the portrait of our experience. And I feel like our literature is just starting to reach that space where we feel comfortable enough that we can reveal all these elements of our experience. Hector Tobar, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Hector Tobar, author, teacher, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Hector Tobar's books include Deep Down Dark, The Barbarian Nurseries, The Tattooed Soldier, and Translation Nation. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.